Take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to the book of Hebrews, if you would. We'll be in the fourth chapter this morning, and um, if you're visiting with us, we're going, um, basically going verse by verse through the book of Hebrews and uh, trying to just unfold the message of Hebrews for, uh, for us, for our church, for our day and age, and for how, how that we can benefit from it. And since we have so many visitors, just share with you a little bit about kind of the overview. The book of Hebrews is written to the Hebrew people, uh, the Jewish people. doesn't mean it doesn't apply to us, but it's written to the, to the church, those who have what we would call Messianic Jews, um, those Jews who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They've come to trust him become followers of Jesus Christ, um, become brothers and sisters in Christ, but they're wrestling with the temptation of returning back to some of the systems that they um, lived under in, in their um, season before becoming Christians. And the reality of it is, is we all face those same temptations. We face the, um, the, the danger of moving back into something that we found we found to bring security and safety in our pre-salvation life. The life of a Christian is a life of dependence. It's a life of trusting in the work of someone else. And uh, our humanity tells us don't trust in the work of someone else. Trust in your own work. Trust in your own ability. Trust in your own righteousness. And so there's a, there's a, there's a level of if you don't really know who Christ is, if you don't really have a grasp on who Jesus Christ is, there's a level of instability that comes along with saying, I'm gonna put my life in this person's hands that I don't know very well. And that's why there's extraordinary value in learning from God's word who Jesus Christ is because you are, you are putting your life in his hands. When you accept him as your savior, you are saying, your life has become my life. Your goals have become my goals. Your future has become my future. And we, 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 I think in many ways, we take that lightly, but it's really not something that we want to take lightly. It's a serious commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so you can see why these um, people, these Christians, these new believers are being tempted to move back into some ceremonies, to some systems that brought them security before. It's like, yeah, I trust in Jesus to save me, but... But let me, let me make sure of that by doing these rituals or ceremonies or sacraments or what, uh, sacrifices or whatever they might be to, to bring additional righteousness to myself. And that's really an, an overview, overview of the book of Hebrews. These last two chapters have focused primarily on the rest that God um, desires for us. He desires for his people to be a restful people. And the reason why God desires for us to be a restful people is because a, uh, as we live and as we function, it reflects on our, our Lord. Um, Psalm 23 talks about the Lord is my shepherd. And because the Lord is my shepherd, there's this whole list of things that are going to be true about me. And the more I identify with the Lord as being my shepherd, the more those things become true, like I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not, 
I will not be afraid. I will not fear. These things become more um, true about us as we grow in our understanding of our relationship that we have with Jesus Christ and, and what he is capable of doing for us. And it makes us a restful people. It makes us that whole idea of he makes us to lie down in green pastures. Is, it carries with it a, a, a level of provision and protection that takes an animal that is very, very nervous and very, very afraid and very, very worrisome. And it's, it, the shepherd is so amazing that, the, that this animal that, that humanity is represented by, because we're worrisome and afraid, right? It takes that animal and, it, and it, it doesn't force that animal to lie down, but, it, but it, it's so good to that animal that that animal will lay down because it has been provided for and protected by this amazing shepherd. And that's what we're supposed to be representing. We're, so, we're not representing our own abilities in this life. We're representing what Christ Jesus has done for us, who he is to us. And if you're a Christian this morning, I would say that every, every Christian that sits in this auditorium this morning would say amen to the fact that we have a good shepherd. And, and where, we, where we fall short is our, our knowledge of that shepherd. Where we fall short is understanding the care and the compassion and the protection that that shepherd gives us. Not, not to set us free from trials and tribulations, but to strengthen us in the midst of those trials and tribulations. It's not that a, sh a sheep doesn't have reasons to be worried. It's that the, the sheep has such a great shepherd that the shepherd, the protection and the care of the shepherd so far outweighs the reasons to worry. But it's, so, it's, it's such an amazing truth. That's the way it is for us. It's not that we don't have reasons to worry, is it? It's not that we, we, we all have reasons to worry. We all have reasons to complain, we all have reasons to, to, to um, be stressed out. We all have reasons for those things. The issue isn't do we have reasons to, be, to, to, be, to do these things. The issue is do we have a shepherd that is so much better that we don't do those things because of how great our shepherd is. So it's ultimately growing in, in intimacy with our shepherd, growing in the knowledge of our shepherd through his word that brings about this, what I would call an extraordinary rest. Um, Philippians 4 calls it a peace that passes all understanding. Something that is beyond our human comprehension, but it is something that is very, very real to us. If I were to ask for a show of hands this morning, and I won't, but if I were to ask for a show of hands this morning as to how many of us are living in a supernatural, restful state, I'm not hoping for eternal life, because all believers do that, but, but living in a supernatural, restful state, a state, a condition in your heart and in your mind that says, I believe that God is sovereign, I believe that he is in control of everything, that nothing happens without his allowing it to happen or without his sovereignly orchestrating it, and therefore nothing will happen in life that I should not trust him in it. If I were to ask that question, I would say that first of all, um, I would probably not raise my hand. And I would say that there would probably be very few of us who would because it is very, very difficult to, to live in that type of a restful situation. It's a sanctification process that we're all on, that we're growing in. And if somebody says that I've arrived at the destination, it's possibly just, 
It's possibly just the reality that they're further away from the destination than they thought because it's, uh, it's something that we're just moving towards. And, and one day, by the grace of God, we're going to reach it. And this text of scripture that we're going to read this morning is so powerfully full of this confidence, this assurance that this, this rest that we have been um, promised by God can become a reality to us. And I'm not just talking about it eternally. Um, I think sometimes we, we believe in our hearts that we're capable of putting our eternal life into God's hands, but we can't trust him for food on the table. I wonder sometimes if we're not being shown how little faith we have in him by the trusting for the food on the table, the practical piece of it. It's like, oh yeah, I trust Jesus for heaven, but I, but I don't trust him for these, for these little things. I just wonder sometimes, I'm not being judgmental or critical, I'm, I'm pointing, you know, one finger pointing that way, four pointing back at me, or three, or whatever number there is. I don't know if the thumb points back or not, but you guys get the picture, right? Um, I wonder sometimes, I wonder sometimes if our, if, our, if our lifestyle doesn't prove something about us spiritually that we need to be concerned about. And I know that it's easy to say, I just, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus, I trust him for eternal life, I know that I'm saved, and yet, and yet, and yet there's this constant um, lack of faith in daily life. There's this constant murmuring and complaining and frustration and stress, and we don't live in this restfulness that, quote, unquote, God promises to all who believe. So I, I want to unpack that this morning, just, just in the time that we have. If, you, if you'll follow along with me, we're going to read the first 11 verses of uh, chapter number 4, and then we're, we'll work through it, um, Lord willing, verse by verse. The Bible says in verse number 1, therefore, and, and the therefore is uh, for the purpose of pointing us where? It points us backwards. So we, if we want to know what the therefore is, we can just look back um, and we'll look at verse 19. He says, so then, uh, um, so then, so we see that they were unable to enter his rest because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it did to them, and the good news is the gospel. The gospel came to us just as it did to them, but the message, the message of the gospel they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have be believed enter his rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. If you just, if you just take a, a, a moment to meditate on that, on those few verses, it talks about God finishing his work on the seventh day, meaning that all of God's work is, is finished on day number seven. If you, as you study the scriptures, you'll find that God's work is something that is an eternal work. And before the foundation of the world, the things that God would accomplish were accomplished. He had planned it all. He would organize it, and it, and it is spoken of in scripture as if it's already accomplished. 
In other words, when God, when God plans something, it might not happen in time yet. But because God planned it, it's as if it's already happened. It, it, it's so sure that it can be spoken of in, in Scripture as because it's been planned, it can be spoken of as having been accomplished before the foundation of the world, although in time, it didn't take place until thousands of years later. The Scriptures talk about Jesus Christ being sacrificed before the foundation of the world. Well, we know his sacrifice was not before the foundation of the world, yet it was planned. It was in place before the foundation of the world and is spoken of as being accomplished because of the fact that, again, when God organizes something, it is as if it is done. And that's, our, that's the sovereignty of our God. That is the decreative nature of our God. When he speaks something, it comes into existence. The Bible says that although God's Get this, although God's work was finished before the foundation of the world, he says this, you will not enter into my rest. We really need to wrestle with that because that is a, even though the Lord's work is done, there are people who are not entering into God's eternal rest. Why are they not entering into God's rest? It's not because they don't know the information. We see that here in this text. It's not because they don't know the gospel. It's not because they don't know the good news. That's not why they're not entering into the rest. There's something different as to why they're not entering into the Lord's rest. We'll find that out here in a little bit. Verse number six, since therefore it remains for some to enter into it and those who formally received the good news, heard the good news, heard the gospel, failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day saying today, through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You'll, you'll notice if you have a, uh, my version has these phrases broken out. And the first one is, I say, swore to you, you shall not enter my rest. It's kind of in, 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 a, in a little separate paragraph. The second one is, they shall not enter my rest. And the third one is, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So there's those who are not going to enter the rest, and then there's this offer of it again. There's this renewal of it. It's almost like the Lord is saying in the, in the, when they left Egypt, and he said to them, you will not enter my rest, and then he made them wander into the wilderness for 40 years. And then in Psalm 95, he reminds them of this promise, which is the time of David as king. He reminds them of the same promise, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. It's as if they hardened their hearts again, and now in Hebrews chapter number four, he says the same thing, do not harden your heart if you hear the Lord's voice. Why? Because there's still some who are meant to enter into the rest of the Lord. There are still some that are left to enter. We, we don't want to miss that. There are still some, he says that in verse number six, therefore it remains for some to enter into this rest. Verse number seven, again, he points a certain day today, saying, through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had not given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Now, let's just note for a moment, who led them into the promised land? Joshua did. The Bible says that Joshua did not give them rest. What he's referring to here, and we know that the promised land was not a place of rest. And right when they go in, there's turmoil, there's fighting, there's defeat. 
there's failure. All of those things are not a part of restfulness. He's not talking about the rest that Canaan was promised to be. He's speaking of a, a different rest, what, what we would call an eternal rest, a, a rest that is a heavenly rest. That's what he's referring to here in this text. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter this rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let me give you some definitions of this idea of rest. If you want to take notes, it's fine. The Bible says, uh, or some definitions, not biblical definitions, but just definitions of rest. From a biblical perspective, it is deliverance from the need to work for salvation or favor with God. In other words, it's deliverance from the um, necessity of performing so that God will show you favor. The, the whole Old Testament system was built around a performance base. You follow the laws as God has laid them out, you receive favor from God. You don't follow the laws as God has laid them out, you receive condemnation from God. The new covenant is, is that God will not remember our sins anymore and he'll put his law or put his, his spirit into our hearts. We no longer have to work or earn God's favor. The reality of it is this. There was never, salvation was never meant to come from works or from earning. The whole Old Testament system was not meant to bring salvation or to bring life. The whole Old Testament system was meant to point people to the one who can bring life. It was meant to reveal to them that Jesus Christ is the only hope that they have. The Old Testament system's purpose was to say to humanity, you cannot do it. And then in the New Testament, in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John Gospels, you have the revelation of Jesus Christ. You have the, 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 the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming into this earth to, to die and to take the sins of all of his people on his back to pay the full price for their sins. This is what the New Testament presents to us. The Old Testament says that you are incapable of, of, of satisfying God in any way. The New Testament says you can satisfy God not on the basis of what you have done, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. God's favor towards me, God's kindness towards me, God's salvation that has been given to me is not on the basis of anything that I have done, but God's salvation towards me is on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for me. That is the hope that I have. And that is, listen folks, that is the only way that you're gonna ever rest. You'll never rest if you believe that your performance is going to somehow gain you favor with God. The standard is perfection, so you might strive and work and strive and work and strive and work, but none of us will ever reach the standard of perfection. The only way to be free from the turmoil of having to please God by our works is to rest in the fact that Jesus Christ pleased God for us. We must be delivered from the need. This rest is a deliverance from the need to work for salvation or favor with God. This rest is a freedom from worry, stress, and frustration. It is a deliverance because it's not based upon us anymore. We no longer have to worry or stress about the things of life because God's in control of them. Philippians 4 and verse 6 through 8, the Bible says that we're not to worry about anything. 
right? We're not to stress out about anything. Why? Because with everything, we come to God. We bring our prayers to him. He is in control. Sometimes, sometimes things don't go the way that we want to in life and we want to blame circumstances and we want to blame situations and we want to blame people. The reality of it is if you want to blame somebody, blame the sovereign one who can change anything. He is the one who is in control. We need to get on our faces before him and seek his deliverance. He can change a situation like that if he chooses to. We don't want to blame God, but ultimately what we're doing is, is we're blaming God. When the children of Israel came to Moses and complained and murmured about bread and about water and about this and about that, God said to Moses, Moses, they're not complaining against you. They're complaining against me because I'm the one who's in control. Is there any situation or is there any circumstance too big for God to change? There isn't. So therefore, if we're in a situation, if we're in a circumstance, there's a reason for it. Because God could change it in a moment. You, you look at the life of Job for, for approximately one year. He goes through horrible suffering. When did it end? Did it, did it end because Job did something amazing? It ended the moment that God decided it would end. Our, our to-do is with God. We must do business with him. Live, alleviate the stress and this worry and this frustration in life and, and lean on him. The third definition is a, a lying down to be settled or fixed or stable in life. It's again, it comes from Psalm 23. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. This is supernatural. It's not natural, it's not human. It's something that happens as a result of, of trusting in our shepherd. Number four is a kingdom rest. It is referred to in the scriptures as something that comes to the church or all of those who believe. And it's something that's referred to in scripture as something that comes in the millennial kingdom of Christ. When Christ sets up his kingdom on the earth, there'll be a thousand years of peace and rest. At, at the end of which there'll be a great war a great frustration, a great worry, and then there'll be the complete completion of Christ's victory, and then there'll be an eternal reign with him, and that's the eternal rest of God. That's what we look forward to. That's what we believe in. That's what we trust in. But folks, listen to me. The trust in the eternal rest with God does not, does not displace or replace a trust in God that can give us rest right now in our daily lives. We can rest in him. He can raise the dead, right? He can, there's nothing that he cannot do. We can rest in him. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says yes. Sometimes he says maybe. Sometimes he says later. But what we do know is this, that he is in control. And there's nothing beyond his ability. And therefore, we can rest in him. Revelation 14, 13 talks about this rest as a result of salvation. He says, and, and, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from, from now on. Blessed indeed, says the, says the spirit, that they have rested from their labors for their deeds follow them. Death is a way that we enter into a, uh, an eternal rest. But not only is death a way that we enter into eternal rest, but, but salvation is a way that we enter into rest. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 
28. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you, I will give you rest. A rest for today. A rest for now. A rest for the situation, the circumstances that you're in right now. To be able to kneel down and to rest in him. The Proverbs talk about people who lie down on their bed at night and have a sweet sleep because they are resting in the Lord. That's what we need. I, I, I tell you a little, little, little personal antidote. I, 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 there was a season of my life, and I don't remember when it was, but there was a season of my life where I could not sleep at night. Now, I don't know if any of you guys have ever been there, but in my earlier years, probably my 20s, there was a season where I just worried about everything. It was literally like I would lay in bed at night and I would just think about everything that I did wrong that day and how I was gonna fix it the next day and I just could not sleep. And, and, and it, was a, it was a long, I mean, I don't even remember how many years it was. Maybe I still am in that mode, I don't know, but I don't think I am. But there's a season where everything just seemed to overwhelm me and I was always trying to fix and always trying to figure out and always trying to, does anybody know where I, where I was at? And, and, and it was like I just could not lay my head on my pillow at night and say, Lord, this is yours. I'm, I'm done with it. I'm going to sleep tonight because you made me to need sleep. This was a battle. But I needed to come to the Lord and give that to him in prayer and lay it at his feet and not, not, uh, and not take it with me. An old preacher once said, and you might be familiar with this song, but there's an old song, an old hymn called Take It, or a part of it was Take It to the Lord and, anybody remember that song? Take it to the Lord and leave it there, right? I heard a preacher say once, the taking it to the Lord is the easy part, it's, or, the leaving it there is the hard part, because we want to take it with us, don't we? We want to re, we pray about it, and we want to re-take uh, it on ourselves after we're done. In this text of scripture, rest and salvation are interchangeable. So let me say it this way. Um, for an unbeliever, if they want to have rest, they have to get saved. If you're here this morning with us and you're not a believer, you don't know Jesus Christ, um, and you want to have rest in your life, the only way that you're going to have rest is to, is to get saved. It's to put your life in Jesus' hands and to trust that he's, he's sufficient, he's sovereign, he's got it all under control, and just to rest in him. That's the only hope that you have. But this truth is not just meant for unbelievers, but it's meant for believers as well. If you're a living life, if you're a Christian, you know Christ for, from the perspective of eternal salvation, you're living in that, but you're struggling daily to give him, to give him reign in your life. I mean, literally, it's like to give him the reins of your life. And Lord, you can do whatever you want with me. If it's good, if it's bad, if it's indifferent, you can do whatever you want with me. I just trust you. I'm just leaving it at your feet. It, it's done. It's like what we do. It's like what we do with eternal things, right? I think we do it with eternal things because we can't control those things. It's like, you know, I'm better off trusting somebody else with the eternal things because I have no power over those things. But the challenge is not trusting the Lord for things that you have no power over. The, the challenge is trusting the Lord for things that you think you have power over. Because really there's nothing you have power over. But trusting the Lord for the things that you think you can control, for the things that you think you can change, for the things that you think you can alter, those are the things, that's the thing that, that challenges us. And 
for a Christian, that's the thing that defines us as well. In so many ways, I think that there, we live in a culture of uh, a lot of professing Christians who don't know the Lord. They don't, they don't rest in the Lord at all. They don't want to go to hell. They know that Jesus Christ is the only way that they're going to get to heaven, but they aren't trusting him at all. And that's a huge danger because the faith that you have in the Lord for eternity, according to scriptures, will manifest itself in daily life. It may not always do it immediately, but at some point, the Lord is going to bring you to himself. He's going to cause you to rest in him. With all of that being said, let's, start, let's unpack this real, let me just give you some things to think about, okay? Number one, let's walk through here. The Bible says in verse number one, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. So the first thought is the promise of rest in verse number one. We wanna note that it's a promise. This is not something that is an option. It's not something that is an offer. It is a promise of rest. When God makes a promise, God makes a promise that is in the same way as God saying, in Genesis, let there be light and, and there was light. When God makes a promise, it's, it's, it's not an optional promise. It is a guaranteed promise. This is, the promise of rest is a guaranteed promise. It is an eternal rest that is guaranteed for all believers. It's also a rest that we can experience each and every day of our lives. It is an unchanging promise. It is a sure promise. Just as sure as when God told Abraham, you're going to become the father of this great nation, God, if you watch Abraham's life as he journeyed from there, Abraham did not make all the right decisions, amen? He did not go to all the right places, did he? He did not do all of the right things. God pro God's promise was not subject to Abraham. God's promise was subject to God's promise. And God's promise was going to accomplish what God's promise, what God's promise set out to accomplish no matter what it took to accomplish it. That is the nature of God's promises. When God makes a promise, he will, without fail, without question, he will fulfill that promise. So when you think about this rest, you need to first of all think about the fact it is a promise from God. And God who makes promises, according to Titus 1 and verse 2, he cannot lie. He cannot lie. God cannot lie. So this promise of rest, first of all, is a, it is a promise. It is something that is sure. It is something that is, is, is accurate, um, is unchanging, is undeniable, is unaltering. It, 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 it is sure as if it had already happened. It is sure, again, that's why the scriptures can talk about things as if they have already happened when they haven't yet happened in time. Scriptures talk about the redemption of Christ in the, in the gospels as if they had already happened, yet they haven't already happened in time. Because they're so sure, because God has decreed them, God has promised them that they will come true. Rest for a believer is a promise from God. It is as sure as if it has already happened. We notice in our text here that rest or this promise that we see for rest comes through his word. It comes through the gospel. He uses the term in this text several times, the word good news. He uses the idea of good news and not gospel because this is an Old Testament connection. He's making a connection to the Old Testament, so he uses the idea of good news and not the idea of gospel. The good news, though, is the gospel. 
But the idea of good news flows throughout the whole of Scripture. So if we want to have this rest, we have to go to the, to the authority that can give us this rest, which is the Word of God. In, in other words, the promises of God are such that they spark within us a level of restfulness. The more we are familiar with and comfortable with the promises of God, like, for instance, Philippians 4, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. We know that verse, right? So the next time we don't have what we need or we think we don't have what we need, that verse is a great comfort, isn't it? My God will supply all of my needs. He is going to take care of me according to his abundant riches and not mine. That's the promise that God gives us. It's a promise that causes us to rest in him. This rest is a promise from God. It is found in his word. Romans 10, 17 says, faith, faith comes by hearing. Faith is what leads us to rest. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes through the word of God, word of Christ. The Bible says in uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's the word of God that brings these things about. The word of God is sufficient. So we see, number one, it's a promise. We see, number two, that it's a promise that still stands. Okay, in, in other words, what he's saying here. The word means that it's left over, it's reserved, it's, it's left behind. If you, can, if you can picture, again, this flow, um, Exodus, we see this promise, we see it in Psalm 95, and we see it here. If you see this idea that people could think, well, he made this promise in Psalm 95, we failed to believe, so the promise is gone. What he does is he reiterates and says, I want you to know this, but the promise still stands. It's good to know, isn't it? You can wake up tomorrow morning knowing that you have failed miserably to trust God today and you can know this, that the promise of God's rest still stands. It's still there. It's still offered. There's a remaining, there's a, a remaining level of rest. It's almost like the woman who went to the cruise of oil each day and when Elisha was there with her and every, she fed Elisha and then every day she went to that cruise of oil and guess what was there? There was more oil to be had there. It's the same way with rest. It's the same way with the Spirit of God. You never deplete him. You never deplete him. That promise of rest is constantly being renewed and refreshed. It's like you can go to the barrel and you know that you're going to find strength and rest for what you need. We can go to Christ and we can know that he's going to always be sufficient. He's going to never leave us nor forsake us. He's going to always be there for us. We can go with that confidence. We can go with the confidence that if we cast our cares upon him, he cares for us. We can go with the confidence that he's in control of everything and that nothing happens. Romans 8, 28, nothing happened that's not for our good. We can go with that confidence. We can go with the confidence that if we pray and ask him for something and he doesn't give it to us, he has a reason for not giving it to us. There's so many reasons to rest in our Lord, yet the devil is resisting and fighting us every single day to keep us from resting in the Lord so that we don't reflect well on him, we reflect horribly on him. For many people, folks, the only the only reference that people have to what the Christian life is like is us. 
It's like we look at Hollywood and we can say, you know, do I really want that life? We can look at professional athletes and we can say, do I really, do I really want that life? You know, you think about this when you're raising up kids. You're like, do I really want that life for my kid? Think about this. If you looked at your life or looked at, I looked at my life, would I say, I really want that life? Because we're the reference, we're the recommendation for Jesus. We're making a recommendation for him every day. What do people see? What do people know? Are we resting? Because the world is a place that's not, doesn't have any rest. There is no rest in the world, but we're saying that in Christ we can have rest. There's enough for, there's enough for us. It's still available. John, 11, 30, John 6, 37 says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. There's enough. It's available. It's still available. It's still being offered today. The gospel is still the good news of salvation. Jesus Christ is still powerful. He's still sufficient. He still supplies the needs of sinful people. So the promise of rest. The second thought that comes from our text here is found in the second phrase of verse number one. It says, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Okay, this is a very important phrase because what the, what the author is saying is, is there should be a level of fear towards the idea of not reaching the goal. Okay? And, 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 and the thought is, if, you, if, you, if you're taking notes, the second point is the fear of fatalism. Here's what the author is saying, and the, and the way that it's translated in the English is somewhat confusing, but the idea of it is, let us, let fear take hold on us. It's, it's, a passive, it's a passive verb, so it's something that's happening to us, not something that we're doing. So it's saying, let fear take hold on you, lest somebody conclude that it's too late. lest somebody conclude that they have been finally, they have finally and decisively missed out on the rest. Let us fear. It's interesting, the pronouns are interesting as well in this phrase because he says, let us fear. It's almost like he's talking about two different groups of people. Let us fear lest someone else think that they have, they have missed out on the rest of the Lord. And the word here used uh, for seems to have missed out, the word literally means that they have concluded in their minds that they're out. He says, let us fear as communicators of the gospel. Let us fear as the communicators of good news that no one feel like they have ultimately missed out. Let no one conclude that they have been utterly rejected. There is still an offer. There is a continual offer of grace, the continual offer of the gospel, the continual preaching of the gospel, and it is a real message, a life-changing message. He says, let us fear lest someone think that they have utterly or finally missed the rest of the Lord. And you might be sitting here with us this morning and you might be in that boat. You might be that person that says, I, I'm, I, it's too late for me. It's too late for me. 
I, 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 I've concluded that I, I have missed out. There are three, three thoughts in regards to that. Number one is, people believe that they have failed because they've waited too long or it's too late for them to be saved. The Bible says in Psalm 150 in verse six, let everyone who has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. As long as we have breath, as long as we have the ability to breathe, as long as we have life in us, there is hope for us to have rest. Whether you be lost this morning and you feel like, you know what, it's just too late for me. I'm, I've lived a life of sin and now I'm this age or whatever and you're like, I, it's just too late for me. I'm just, it's too late. I've waited too long. Or you're a believer in here this morning and you've lived a life of worry and, and, and concern and you're like, I just, I just I'm, it's too late. I can't be set free from this. I'm too old. Listen to me. You have the wrong perspective. Because Jesus Christ is just as capable of setting you free today as he was last week, last month, and 10 years ago, and 50 years ago. What he's saying is, is let, let us fear. Let us, let us who love and know the gospel be afraid that we don't communicate a gospel that tells people it's too late. It's not too late. If they come to Jesus in repentance and faith, if they come and they, and they lay themselves at Jesus' feet, he will receive them and he will save them. That is a promise from God. And there isn't anybody in here that knows God's design of things to say it's too late for you. That is God's decision. That is God's choice. That is not us. We preach a gospel that is a gospel of hope for every individual. As long as we have breath, we praise the Lord. As long as we can hear the voice of God, Mark 4, 23, the Bible talks about if they hear his voice, those who have ears to hear, Matthew 13 talks about the same thing. Matthew 11, come unto me all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Revelation twenty two seventeen, come and let the one who hears say come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take of the water of life freely without a price. Some people believe that it's too late for them. The second fear of fatalism is some people believe that they're too sinful to be saved, that they're too bad, that they've, they've sinned too much to be able to experience the salvation that God offers. There is no one who is too sinful for the Lord's work. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 1.15, the apostle Paul is speaking, and he says, this saying is trustworthy, and it is deserving of full acceptance. In other words, this saying is worthy of everyone's acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Isn't that, a good, isn't that good news? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He's just saved the Apostle Paul, and here's what the Apostle Paul says about himself, of whom I am the chief. There's no one who is too far gone down the road to be fatalistic about their ability to be saved from their sin, from the wrath of God, from God's judgment, from restlessness, from worry, from stress, from strife. There's nobody who is too far gone that Jesus Christ cannot deliver them. 
and I'm speaking salvifically this morning, if you're not saved and you don't know Jesus Christ and you think, you know what, you don't even know the half of what I've done in my life. Listen, I don't even need to know the half of what you've done in, my li- in your life. You don't know the half of what I've done in my life. And I will tell you this, Jesus Christ is capable of saving anyone. There is no one who is too sinful for Jesus Christ to save. That is the exact message of this simple one phrase in this text of scripture. Let us fear that no one become fatalistic about their condition. You're not too far gone. Jesus Christ loves saving people who are too far gone. If you're saved this morning, If you're sitting here in our congregation and you love the Lord and you've lived a life of worry and you've lived a life of stress and you've lived a life of frustration and you think to yourself, I've just done it for too long, listen to me, you're not too far gone either. Jesus can set you free today from whatever it is that you are wrestling with, whatever it is that you are struggling with, whatever it is that you are addicted to, Jesus Christ can set you free today. He can do it. It's easy to say that, isn't it? I think for so long, we've lacked seeing God do things like that. We've lacked seeing God perform miracles. We've lacked seeing God set people free in a moment. I remember hearing stories growing up of people who were alcoholics and they got saved and they never drank a drop of alcohol again in their life. People who smoked cigarettes and got saved and they never smoked another cigarette in their life. And that's, these were addictions. You say, well, those things are not sinful, Pastor John. These things were addictions to them, and they were sinful. We haven't seen God act in such a way for a long time. And so you know what happens when you don't see God act for such a way in such a long time? You start questioning whether he's capable of doing it. The Bible tells us, I believe it's in Mark 6, and I might be, you might be able to correct me later, but I'm going to stop here on this thought. Jesus says to them, he goes into his own hometown and he tells them a prophet is not respected amongst his own people. You guys remember the story? He goes into his own hometown and he tells them this. He says, he could not, and the word could not is used there. I think the idea of it is, is he did not. He did not perform many miracles among them because of their unbelief. And I wonder sometimes if we're missing out on some of the things that God is very capable of doing just simply because we don't believe that he can. We're not willing to put it in his hands. We're not willing to trust him with it in such a way that we completely get out of the way. Listen, our God is the type of God that if you want to do it on your own, he'll let you. But if you're willing to give it to him and let him do it, he'll do it. And he'll do a way better job than you'll do. He will get it done. And we will just mess it up further. Right? I think sometimes we miss out on what God is doing, what God is capable of doing, because we do not trust him enough to give it to him and to rest in him fully that he can do what he wishes to do. We still serve a sovereign God, folks. And listen to me. His offer of rest, his offer of rest salvifically for salvation His offer of rest to believers is still standing today. And it is standing for all of us. And it is not just an offer of rest, but he wants us to know 
that it is a promise of rest. And he wants us also to know that no one is too far gone to receive his rest by faith. My prayer for you this morning is that you will, if you're here amongst us and you have not received Christ as your Savior, you've never, you've never repented of your sins, acknowledged that you are unworthy of, you can't get his favor. You've never acknowledged that and you've never put yourself in Jesus' hands and said, Jesus, you do with me as you wish. My prayer for you this morning is that you would do that. It's as simple as repenting of your sins and placing your faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you. If you're sitting here this morning and you are a Christian and you are struggling today to stop worrying, to stop stressing, and to live a life that rests in Jesus Christ, my prayer for you is that you would re-experience that. Not that you get saved again, but that you experience the grace of God that you experience in your salvation. It's the same. The same power that saves you is the same power that can set you free right now. Just give it to him. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this time this morning. I pray that you would be with us, that, Lord, there wouldn't be anybody here that would have a fatalistic perspective of themselves, that they perhaps are too sinful or too far gone, or that they would not be fatalistic. They would realize that your grace is sufficient, that your sacrifice is powerful, can did pay the price for, for the worst of sins, and that if they will come in repentance and faith, that they will experience and, and they will enjoy the, the rest that you give. And then for those of us who live lives that are saved, but yet are still wrestling with restfulness, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to put these things in your hands, to trust you with them, to love you, and to live for you. We thank you so much for all that you do in Christ's name. Amen.